0: Hello, I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Coming up after the news, it's Philosophy Talk. Today's topic, moral dilemmas. Oh, I know what that is. That's like when your dying friend pleads with you to take him to the doctor, but
1: you've already promised your daughter to take her to the seventh game of the World Series. Well, maybe in your simple and unproblematic life, Ken, but some people have real moral dilemmas. You upset the canoe... Your mother and your wife are both drowning. You're a strong enough swimmer to save one, but not both. There's a real moral dilemma for you.
0: Uh, Okay, so what's the difference between a real moral dilemma and a plain old-fashioned tough choice? And how do you live with yourself once you've made your choice between these two bad alternatives?
1: Well, those are good questions. Moral dilemmas aren't just a philosopher's invention. They're problems for everybody, and we'll discuss them when Philosophy Talk continues with ethicist Walter Sennett-Armstrong and Moral Dilemmas After the News. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything.
0: Except your intelligence.
1: I'm Ken Taylor. And I'm John Perry. I'm coming to you from the studios of KALW, the little station at Cannes in San Francisco. And I'm coming to you all the way for, all the way around the world in uh, Canberra,
0: Australia, where we're in the midst of a freezing winter here, but a hot philosophical atmosphere. And thanks to the Australian Broadcasting Corporation and the wonders of modern technology, John and I are con- able to continue conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner down on the Stanford campus back in the good old USA.
1: And today we're talking about the fascinating topic of moral dilemmas. Now, we all know what a dilemma is. A dilemma is when you've got two choices— and there's good reasons for doing both of them, but but you can't do both of them. You've got to do one or the other. So you've got a dilemma. Those are the horns of the dilemma, the two choices, and you sometimes get impaled on them. That is, it's painful to have a dilemma because you yeah. can't do both things you should do. But what's special about a moral dilemma? Kent? Well,
0: what, what's special about a moral dilemma is the moral part of it, that the, that the choices are both morally compelling. Maybe you have really good reason, perhaps overwhelmingly good reasons, to do each thing. Right? So take our example from before. Uh, My mother and my wife are both drowning. I'm a strong swimmer. I can save one, but I can't save them both. Say, why should I save my mother? Well, she's nurtured me. I love her deeply. I have a lifelong connection to her. That seems like a very good reason to save her. Why should I save my wife? Well, she's my partner in life. She's the mother of my children. We've been together. We have all this history. Uh, Gee, that seems like a very good reason to save my wife. Whichever I do, I, I honor one thing, but I dishonor the other thing, and they both deserve honoring.
1: Yeah, but but if I was a if I were a utilitarian, wouldn't I say? But look, look, Ken, it's it's not really a dilemma. Your mother is presumably much older than your wife and has fewer years left. Uh, your your wife has more years left, so you will contribute more to human happiness by rescuing your wife than your mother. So yeah. it's not really a dilemma.
0: Yeah, that's what the utilitarian would say, and Kantians would say something similar. You know, there's just one overriding moral principle, and do that thing that that one overriding moral principle is going to do. But that's that's just because they think there's only one source of value my my relation to my wife and my relation to my mother they're competing sources of values and one can't trump the other i think the kantian and the utilitarian are just are just mixed up and if you look at real life john you see that moral dilemmas really are real we face
1: them all the time don't we yes we do as a matter of fact you even read about them in the daily news and with respect to one of the things you've been reading about in the daily news our roving philosophical reporter amy Standen files this report
2: One reporter is in jail today, and another says he will testify before a grand jury about who leaked the name of a CIA operative. A federal judge sent New York Times reporter Judith Miller to jail for refusing to name her source. Unless she decides to talk, Miller will be jailed. Miller hasn't said
3: much about her decision, but it's probably safe to call it a moral one based on what she'd say is a moral responsibility to her source.
4: I think fundamentally most of us in journalism believe that you do have to protect a confidential source under almost any imaginable circumstance. This
3: is Andrew O'Hare, a reporter for Salon.com and a professor of journalism at NYU.
4: imagine exceptions. You know, somebody comes to you and tells you in confidence that they've just planted a bomb somewhere. I mean, that's an open and shut case. And I don't, think, I don't think the most extreme First Amendment advocate would say that you have any obligation to keep that information secret. But short of something that alarming and that extreme, I think many of us feel that we do have an obligation to protect the source. And that, that's why journalists by and large, not unanimously, but by and large are standing by Miller's decision.
3: Of course, what Miller did is illegal, so what about her moral obligation to follow the law? Faced with two conflicting moral duties, which one do you choose?
2: On the one hand, There's the clear governmental interest in deterring leaks and ensuring evidence of criminal charges in a context involving a very serious breach of national security.
3: Deborah Rohde is a law professor at Stanford University.
2: On the other hand, there are the obvious values underpinning the journalistic privilege, which is that individuals won't talk to journalists freely without some assurances that their conversations will remain confidential. And the nation has a very strong interest in ensuring that the media, the so-called fourth branch of government, is in a position to have information that it can use to ensure that democratic processes work and that there's an informed uh, citizenry capable of imposing checks on governmental power.
3: Okay. well, what about when the source is exactly the kind of high-level government insider whose power needs to be checked? Rohde says it doesn't make a difference.
2: If reporters like Judith Miller expose in this case because it turns out they don't think the guy is so great, how does anyone in the next case know that the reporter isn't going to make the same judgment about them? In order to provide the assurance for sources out there, you can't have a turn on the journalist's assessment after the fact of whether they like the person or not.
3: Well, that makes Miller's decision a little easier. But Andrew O'Hare isn't entirely convinced.
4: Apparently, the leak itself was an illegal act. Now, now that's not necessarily unique. When Daniel Ellsberg leaked the Pentagon Papers, that was probably an illegal act, too. But the question of the motivation behind the illegal act is... A dubious one in this case it appears at least that there was a political motivation rather than a sort of whistleblower public interest motivation uh that's not something that the law deals with terribly well the law isn't very good at differentiating right from wrong it's good at differentiating legal conduct from illegal conduct it's definitely not a slam dunk case it was really the reporter's individual judgment as far as what the right thing to do was
3: For philosophy talk this is amy standen
0: You can listen to the rest of this episode by purchasing it on iTunes Music or for unlimited listening, subscribe to our archive at philosophytalk.org.